Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. Welcome to another episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Today on our show, we are going to answer questions from our listeners. We have wonderful listeners. We love our audience. And both Allie and I have been very much looking forward to this show. So if you listen to our show regularly, you'll know that we have basically two categories of show. So our main bread and butter is the educational episode. We take one topic and we bring on an expert and we're going to ask them to cut through the BS, cut through the opinions, cut through the ideologies. We don't want to hear any of that. We want to know what does the best research tell us about this topic? What are the facts? So that's our bread and butter. That's the, the main type of show that we do is that educational show. Uh, infrequently, we do shows which are interview shows and we label them as interview shows so you know that they are different from our educational shows. And the interview shows were, you know, interview with Jim Swift, interview with Charlie Sykes. And on those shows, we're not bringing somebody on to give an expert opinion. We want to hear from interesting people about their lives, their experiences, you know, their commentary, their particular perspectives on, you know, a variety of issues. So, we do that infrequently. Again, our, our bread and butter show was that educational show. We pick one topic and we drill down to the, the core facts about that topic. But we want to add one more category to the Utterly Moderate podcast, and that is the mailbag episode. We want to reach into the mailbag and hear from our wonderful listeners who we actually hear from quite frequently through our website. And uh, we're going to do that today. So, Allie, can you tee up our first question? Can you reach into the mailbag and, and let us know what's on tap first? So our first question for you, Lawrence, comes from superfan, OG fan, Jason. Jason wants to know, why is it that so many people feel capitalism is unfair? Because Jason feels that it's very fair. Do you know the answer to that? Well, Jason, that's a good question. Uh, first thing I'll say is thanks for listening. We appreciate all of our listeners. And um, yeah, good question. The answer is I don't know. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I can't really speak to why people feel a certain way about economic systems. And I'm not an economist, so I'm not in a position to tell you what system is the best and which one's the worst and all the various systems in between. But I can just give you my own perspective on what I think about capitalism and uh, that is, you know, whenever students ask me what I think about capitalism, what my own personal opinion is, I often give this Winston Churchill quote. Uh, the quote's actually about democracy. And I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but it's something like uh, democracy is the worst form of government, except all those other ones that have been tried from time to time. And I, I often give that quote about capitalism, which is, you know, capitalism is the absolute worst, except for every other system you know that's been tried. So, you know, I think that mixed economies are where it's at. I think that markets should play a prominent role. And I think that the government should play a prominent role. You know, I think oftentimes when we have these debates about capitalism, the debates can get overheated and we can take certain aspects of certain capitalist systems that are unfair. And I think they're demonstrably unfair. And we then sort of paint the entire system as being unfair. I think we want to remain a mixed economy. I think we want to have uh, strong markets in certain areas and then strong government in other areas. Uh, and, and, you know, when we find a part of the system that's dysfunctional, when we find a part of the system that is 
not working so well and we think is unjust and we think is unfair, then we need to figure out what is the correct balance between markets and government. But I think there's a prominent role for both. And uh, yeah, like I said, I think mixed economies are where it's at. All right, let me reach in the mailbag here, Allie, and look for our next question. Let's see, this one is for you. All right, this one comes from Jonathan in Delaware. And Jonathan asks, I know this question may be somewhat trite, but I'm going to ask anyway. If there was a person, either from the past, could be a historical figure, or from today, who you could have on the show, who would it be? And what would you ask him? Um, that is a really good question. A past or present person. Um, perhaps I have William F. Buckley on the brain because I've been reading a lot of Buckley lately and watching old clips of Firing Line where he leans back in this angle of repose that is so deep. Sometimes it looks like he is lying down. Um, but I would be petrified to talk to William F. Buckley, but I would really like to talk to him. And so that's past, ready, and present is his son, Christopher Buckley. Do I have a thing for the Buckleys? I don't think so. Um, because William F., of course, the founder of modern conservatism, um, he was formidable and a huge brain. And I'd love to see what he thought about how everything worked out. <laughs> because I think that there have been um, some of his work has really shown us instrumentally what conservatism could be. And then I think that there are other portions of his work that have shown us very instrumentally what conservatism actually is. So I'd love to know what he thinks about the here and now. But in the modern day, I would like to actually meet Christopher Buckley because he is a satirist and he is one of the funniest writers that I consistently read. His books just skewer Washington, D.C. and all of the different types of people who work and play and basically look over your shoulder as they're talking to you to see if someone better has walked into the room. Um, and I like that in a guy. I like someone who can skewer that kind of pomposity, someone who can really, um, if, if satire is, is the jester uh, speaking truth to the king, then Christopher Buckley's work has made its way to mock many kings. And so I would love to talk with him and find out. I think I kind of know what he thinks about today because I just read his most recent one, which came out last summer called Make Russia Great Again. Um, but I still would like to talk with him about it and then maybe also find out, you know, what it was like growing up as the son of William F. Buckley. My guess is that's why he's a satirist. That's my answer. How about you, Lawrence? Who would you like to talk with? Well, Allie, I am more than willing to answer that question in a moment, but we actually just had a question come across the line. This is from Lawrence in Pennsylvania, and he wants to know, <laughs> Allie, why didn't you answer that question honestly and say Taylor Swift? Oh, I mean, who doesn't want to hang out with Taylor Swift. Um, but then, you know what? I'm like three times her age. So all I would be thinking the whole time is like, oh God, I'm so wrinkled. I'm so old. I'm so flabby. Um, it just, you know what? I would, I would love to hear her sing, but not in a stadium filled with 25,000 screaming young people. 
Boy, that made me sound old, but that's okay. No, no, I, I don't think I really want to hang out with Taylor Swift. I wait, I wait, wanna... I have an idea. Why don't you hang out with Taylor Swift, you know, hang out with her for a while, then get into a feud with her, and that could bring a bunch of attention and listeners to our show. Oh my God, she would make us so famous. <gasps> oh, why didn't I? You're, you know what? You are Machiavellian in your always thinking. In your thoughts. That's such a good idea. Okay, let me start again then. I think that I really should get to know Taylor Swift, become her like her second mom or something. And then, oh my gosh, and then we leak it and it will be, oh, this is amazing. Okay, then everyone will be listening to us. It's going to be fantastic. This is our future. You know what? And, and Lawrence from Pennsylvania, I apologize. <laughs> that was the right answer. I didn't realize there was the right answer. And there was. And now you, Lawrence from Pennsylvania, who would you like to have dinner with or talk to or, you know, go on a picnic with? Well, I'm going to take the easy way out and uh, not go for a historical figure because that's just too hard. There's too many. And I feel like that's a fraught question. <laughs> and I'll just get myself into trouble by picking the wrong person or ignoring somebody else. But um, if I had to pick somebody from today, uh, I think that I would really like to talk to the economist Roz Chetty. Um, he's just done some amazing work. I would encourage everybody to go to the Opportunity Atlas, which... Uh, has data from tens of millions of anonymous tax records. It allows you to look at people in their mid-30s and see their outcomes, incarceration, income, upper mobility, etc., and trace that all the way back to where they grew up. And you really get a good idea of the impact of place on people's outcomes in the U.S. So he'll never come on the show because he is just way too busy and way too important. But uh yeah, I think I'd love to talk to Roz Chetty. He'd be an awesome guest. So, all right, Allie, let's go back into the mailbag here. And our next question is for, for me. This one is from Thomas from the United Kingdom. And his question is, Lawrence, how optimistic are you that the international community will act appropriately on the issue of climate change before it is too late? I am particularly interested in this question because while I have enjoyed all of your episodes, I particularly enjoyed the first one on climate change. Well, thank you, Thomas. Thanks for the question. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening all the way back to our first episode. That's awesome. Um, that's about all the positive things I can say about your question, Thomas, because uh, when I when I look at this issue, you know, I'm not a climatologist, but when I look at the reports coming out of these various scientific agencies and, and scientific organizations, um, all indications. And in fact, Emily Cloyd said this on our first show, all indications are that we are not headed for the goals that were set by the Paris climate accord. So, um, you know, I'm happy that we are reentering that agreement and I'm happy that the world's acting. I think it's a positive step. I think we're going to avoid the worst outcomes for sure. I mean, I don't think we're going to have the worst case scenarios, but uh, um, I think we're headed for a future that is going to be more uncomfortable than it needs to be by all indications from all the projections that I'm seeing. So um, I, I'm not optimistic that we're going to act in time to make things um, as comfortable as they could be on this earth, but um you know, I, I think we'll avoid the worst catastrophes, I guess. I guess that would be my take on, on that. 
Lawrence, this next question is for you from Mario from Virginia. Mario writes, I would love to hear an episode that has a guest who has studied the impact of Australia's gun law reform from 1996. Oh, I completely agree, Mario. I think that uh, gun control would be a wonderful topic. In fact, we have a long list of topics that we plan to cover and we just haven't gotten around to yet. And these topics, oftentimes the reason why we haven't gotten around to them yet, besides the fact that, you know, we, we only do about one a week. But um, one of the reasons why we haven't gotten around to them yet is because we are we try our best to be very, very careful to get people that are going to get us as close to the truth as possible. You know, there are lots of people who do good research, but are still kind of guilty of looking at things from a particular perspective and letting their biases and their ideologies get in the way. And we don't want that. We want people who are looking at things as objectively as possible you know, are getting as close to the truth as possible, are really just doing really good, rigorous, objective, empirical work. And even if the even if that means they're they're telling us something that's uncomfortable, even if that means they're telling us something that maybe we don't want to hear. Right. Because we have a particular view of a particular issue, whether it's gun control or whatever. So, um, yes, that's one of those topics that's on our list. We just want to make sure we get the right person who's doing the best work, you know, the most factual work, you know, isn't letting their biases or their, their you know, their, their preferences, letting ideology get in the way. And then once we find that person, it's also a matter of making sure that, you know, they want to come on the show and that, you know, our, our schedules can line up. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a great topic for sure. You know, and, and that kind of gets to another one of the questions for both of us, which is, Someone asked us to give listeners a peek behind the curtain of the podcast and how we pick the topics that we pick. And we go back and forth with topics that are so powerfully moving. And I mean that in kind of every sense of the word, that we don't want to tee up something that's going to lead us down the path of the emotive and sort of affective behavior that we see elsewhere. And so there are some topics that are great. And maybe later on, um, when the national temperature is cooled a little bit, we'll be able to address them more directly. But right now, we're in this place where everyone is just yelly and, um, and, and looking like aiming for a fight. And so we're planning on having some important conversations in the coming months. And some of those topics are, are difficult, but, um, what we don't want to do is, um, not only, you know, make our listeners mad. We also don't want to be part of the problem that we're trying to, in a very small way, solve. All right, Allie, this question comes from one of our wonderful listeners, Lara. I think that's how you pronounce that. Lara. I, I don't think that's Laura. I think it's Lara from North Carolina. And she asks, I keep waffling between feeling like we are more polarized than ever with no hope and then feeling like there are actually more people in the middle like us who are no longer enchanted with the hyperpartisan narratives of the last five years. Am I naive to think that when I'm on the Internet, it seems like everything is terrible. But when I interact with people in real life, it's not terrible at all. What is your read? 
Well, I think that it is both, and I'm not trying to have it both ways. I think that there are real divides that we have in this country, particularly when it comes to some of the things we've already talked about, the issues of what is fact and what is fiction. Um, We have real divides right now between our personal understandings of the world and what is being sold to us for a variety of reasons. So that kind of polarization is very real. And the way that we see that real polarization is in what political scientists call negative partisanship, where we are politically divided in a two-party system, you know, that's normal. But where we are right now is not just partisan, where, you know, Democrats and Republicans will fight against each other in an election. We have negative partisanship, which means that we dislike whoever is fighting for the other team more than we even like the person on our team. And so that kind of raw, angry, really hatred towards the opposing party, that is driving a lot of our polarization. And that is very real because there are a bunch of actors out there who gain from our division, who gain from our polarization. And so there are political groups who gain members of their interest groups. Um, They gain political power if they are different kinds of money groups. And so they put a lot of pressure on citizens to stay angry. And the same thing goes for the media, because there are benefits to be gained by an angry populace who tunes in to see what the latest development is. And so they gin up a lot of fake anger and a lot of fake issues that aren't necessarily as important to us as we've been led to believe. And so it's that to me feels performative. It feels um, not as real as the actual policy differences that we have. So, Lara, the reason that it feels so heightened online and it feels like things are much better in person. Um, This reminds me of an expression that a friend of mine told me, and she learned it at her church, which is that it is hard to hate up close, meaning that when you're actually talking to somebody, you can find that kind of common ground. You're more than one thing, right? You're not just you know, a Democrat or a Republican, you're also a mom or you're also, you know, a girlfriend, you bowl, you knit, you do whatever. And so you could find common ground in all of the other things that we are. But when you're online, you are one thing and you are the one thing that is talking about the one thing that somebody else disagrees with. And so that drives our polarization even more than the folks who gain financially and politically from dividing us. And so I think that's what you're seeing in real time, which is why my big thing is always to talk to people with whom you disagree politically, because you will likely find something that you agree upon. I mean, even if it's just that we all love Taylor Swift uh, or that maybe we all hate Taylor Swift, whatever it is, you could find something to agree on. And that is the stuff that is going to mend a lot of the fences that we have built against one another. Getting to know somebody with whom you might politically disagree is the stuff that's going to bring us back 
from such a really angry place. And I think that's one of the most important things that we need to remember um, because people are endlessly fascinating. And if we shun half of the public because of who they voted for or what kind of sticker they have on the back of their car, then we are missing out on a lot of really important and interesting stories. And we're missing out on some friendships that could be made. Um, okay, Lawrence, I've got a question for you. Jamie in Massachusetts asks, I hear a lot of people telling me that social security is in trouble. And then on your show, you sound so calm about it. Can you explain the seeming contradiction? Actually, I, you know what, J Jamie, I'm with you. I want to know why it is he's calm about this too. <laughs> well, Jamie, that's a, that's a good question. I don't think that we should be overly calm or overly confident. Um, there's a lot to be pessimistic about. So for instance, if nothing changes, social security will have problems. That's absolutely true. And it's also true that there are a number of politicians who, for ideological reasons, they don't like government, they don't like taxes, they don't like social security for some reason, they would like to kill the program. And so that's not good either. And they make disingenuous and misleading and, and bad faith arguments for why uh, the program doesn't work. But here's why I'm hopeful. For starters, Social Security is very popular among the American people, and it works really well. Okay. Additionally, I'm also hopeful because it will not take major changes to keep Social Security solvent for many years. And we know this because a number of researchers have looked at this. So one is, is somebody I've talked to recently is Kathleen Romig. She's at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And her research has determined that simple things like removing the cap on taxable earnings would keep the program healthy for years to come. Let me see. I actually have a quote from a conversation I had with her recently. Let me see if I can pull it up on my computer. Okay. So I asked her the question, is Social Security broken? Here was her response. Quote, no, it's going to need some tweaks in order to be sustainably financed over the long term. But the fundamental structure is sound. The most popular tweak is to raise or remove the cap on taxable wages. That would be at the top of my list also. End quote. So again, that's a pretty minor tweak. You know, I think the cap right now is around $132,000 or, or something like that. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's where the cap is right now. And above that, you know, your earnings are not taxed for social security. What folks like her have found is remove that cap and the program is solvent for years to come. So why not do it? It's popular. It's an incredibly successful program. It works and it just needs minor tweaks. So lots to be optimistic about. doesn't seem like there's any reason in my estimation that we should change it. Now, could Congress ignore all this and hurt this incredibly popular and successful program? <laughs> Absolutely, Jamie. All right, back to the mailbag. This question is for Allie. This comes from Matt in Pennsylvania. He asks, in the time in between Election Day and Inauguration Day, the One America News Network, OANN, and Newsmax seem to gain a lot of traction. I don't hear a lot about them now. Are they still ascendant and giving Fox News a run for their money? That is a really good question, Matt. Uh, thanks for asking that. So it was very interesting what happened on election night with Fox News because 
President Trump was watching coverage and expected to have a very pro-Trump approach on election night, which was not unfair of him to expect because Fox News has been very pro-Trump. Unfortunately for then-President Trump, Fox News on election nights has what they call their decision desk, which is their election desk, and they are data folks. So there's a bit of a difference between the pundits that are on cable news and those pundits are people who give their opinions and they're very loud and they're very entertaining and they're very dramatic. And then there are the journalists who are also on these cable news channels. And the journalists actually, um, you know, they really have to abide by the rules and regulations of journalism as a profession, which means they've got to just play it straight and they can't put their thumb on the scale. And so the Fox News decision desk was very widely respected as, as being not only fair, not only uh, impartial, but also really sort of thigh high in all of the data in a way that gave them an edge because the data that they were getting, which was the same data that other news outlets were getting, they were able to really with these scientists, they were able to aggregate that data and come forward with projections. And so that evening, they came forward with several projections that then President Trump had lost a number of states, most significantly Arizona. And when that happened, it meant that then President Trump really lost almost any possibility of winning the election, even though there was going to be a lag in time from election night until the final votes were counted. And that made the Trump team so upset that at first they called, there's really good reporting on this. They called the people at Fox and just screamed at them like, you've got to rescind that call. You've got to take it down. And when Fox said that they really couldn't do that, then the Trump team started throwing a whole lot of shade at Fox News, which, you know, was the sort of the mothership for a lot of the Trump supporters. And because of that, many Trump supporters began to migrate to OANN and also to Newsmax. The 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 ascendancy that you ask about, that was very real. And in fact, OANN and Newsmax both both gained a huge number of viewers and Fox lost viewers enough so that in January, Fox came in second to CNN for the first time in over 19 years. So that was a huge loss for them. And they were very much aware of the fact that OANN and Newsmax were eating into their viewership. So recently, and by recently, I mean, you know, in March, there was another survey that was done by the Pew Research Center. And what they found was a couple months after all of this, like, huge election drama, Fox News still maintains a massive lead over Newsmax and One American News Network. So, for example, over all U.S. adults, Fox News um, brings in about 43% of adults who got political news in the past week. Um, Newsmax is at 10% and OANN is at 7%. 
And so that kind of gives you a, a pretty good idea of where the splits are. And um, the problem for Newsmax and for OANN is that it's just they are not as easy to find. Um, and so Fox News can, can, uh, continues to be this real big juggernaut for those on the right. And while I know that they are trying to maintain their viewership, I, I think they've relaxed a little bit because they see that most conservatives stick with them uh, instead of going to Newsmax and OANN. It's a really good question. Lawrence, this next question is for both of us, but I want to begin with you. Henry in Germany asks, I like your emphasis on the importance of consuming good information. Can you tell us your personal media diets? That's a good question, Henry. Thank you for asking. I agree. That is a good question. Thank you, Henry. Um, over the course of a whole week, there's a whole host of sites that I'll visit. I mean, on a daily basis, there's four that I pretty much spend most of my time on. That's Axios, Politico, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. Now, like I said, throughout the course of an entire week, I'll go to more than just that. So the Associated Press, the BBC, you know, Washington Post, USA Today. But on a daily basis, the core sites that I depend upon primarily is, uh, like I said, Axios, Politico, Wall Street Journal, and New York Times. How about you, Allie? Well, here's something that's either a little bit embarrassing or something to be very proud of. I get up earlier than any of the bulletins that I get <laughs> overnight. So you read Axios, good for you. I've already been up for two hours at that point. I've been exercising. It's like me and Mark Wahlberg were the ones who are up at, you know, 4 a.m. Um, and so I do read Axios by the time it finally comes out. But I also, when I when my feet first hit the ground, I will scroll through any push alerts that I get from the night before. And so, you know, I'm from D.C., so my homepage is the Washington Post, and, and that's what's comfortable for me. And so I read a lot of that. But I also get push alerts from the Wall Street Journal and from the New York Times and from the Associated Press. Now, anyone who ever watched my TED Talk knows that I recommended that you not do that, that you take off all of the push alerts off your phone and you will be a happier person. Um, and, and I really firmly believe that. And I think that's why I'm not a very happy person, but I am very well informed with a very balanced news diet because I also think that it's important to, to read the stuff that's real um, and read the stuff that has some substance and, and backing and foundation to it. And after that, I'd love to get, you know, the good commentary from the bulwark and from editorial pages, because the best way to read commentary is if you really understand the issue first. So if you do it the other way around, that's when you're eating your dessert for dinner. And um, experts tell me you're not supposed to do that. Although every now and then, let's be honest, I think we all kind of do. <laughs> all right. You're making all of us hungry. So let's move on back to the mailbag. This one's from Dennis in Maryland. And this is for you, Allie. Who are the politicians we should look to as the future of both the Republican and Democratic parties? Hi, Dad. Um, so good question, Dennis. Uh, the future politicians for both the Democrats and the Republicans. I think that there are folks waiting in the wings on both sides. And what's going to be really interesting for me is 
how this is going to play out and who they're going to be. Because the time that I am looking at are the 2022 primaries. On both sides, we are going to have some internecine battles that are going to be very constructive. So on the left, for the Democrats, we're going to have the more liberal wing of the Democratic Party battling it out with the more center-left or establishment wing. And there are a bunch of primary fights that are going to be really instrumental in figuring out which side of the Democratic Party is on its way up and which side is going to be receding. And since Joe Biden is fairly, you know, a lot of his policy proposals are fairly progressive. I don't think we can deny that. But he tries to operate and has operated as a centrist Democrat. It'll be really interesting to see if there is a uh, repudiation of the centrism that Biden as president is espousing on the left. So that's thing one. Thing two, for the Republicans, I'm very curious to see if the Trump wing of the Republican Party, um, if that wing becomes successful in their primary fights against the more center-right establishment Republicans who will be fighting to maintain some sense of control over the party. Because at this point, it really feels like former President Trump is the one who's in control. So we are going to see those fights happen in a bunch of different House seats and very importantly, in a bunch of different Senate seats. And right here in Pennsylvania, we are going to have a Senate fight that's going to um, have the Republicans fighting to keep control of our uh, Republican seat right now, which is held by Pat Toomey. Um, and I know that there are going to be Trumpy Republicans running against more, quote unquote, establishment Republicans running. Um, the reason that that is especially important is that and perhaps you did not know this, Dennis, but I think you probably did. In this great country of ours, there are only six states that have Senate delegations that are mixed, meaning one Democrat, one Republican, six out of 50. The other 44 states have a unified delegation. And so if it looks like the Republicans say run somebody who's super Trumpy, and that doesn't fly with the citizens of the great state of Pennsylvania, um, then we will become one of those unified delegations and just have two Democrats going to Washington. So all of this just amounts to me to be like the most important and most interesting thing that that's happening. Um, and the same kind of fight you're going to see in Ohio for that Senate seat, um, where there are going to be uh, liberal Democrats who are going to be running against establishment Democrats and fighting for that as well. So we've got a lot ahead of us and I'm very excited. So um, thank you, Dennis, for that question and also for getting both shots um, because that means we're going to be able to keep you nice and healthy to watch those 2022 primaries with me. Okay, Lawrence, I have another question to you from Sophia from California. Do you plan to do an episode on the gender pay gap? That's a good question. Thank you, Sophia. I want to know about this. That is a really good question. Thank you for that. Yes, Allie and I have a long list of topics that we plan to get to, and this is one of them. Just a matter of getting the right scholar who's doing the best objective, rigorous work, and then matching up our schedules. But yes, absolutely. 
And there's a variety of folks who I'd like to get. A lot of them are economists. One of them is Francine Blau. I believe she's at Cornell University. And what these economists have done is they've been able to quantitatively isolate the factors responsible for the pay gap. So very briefly, when we talk about the gender pay gap, we're referring to uh, when you look at all full-time female workers, what percentage of male earnings do females earn? And so when you make that comparison, it's about 80% of male earnings. So the question, of course, is when you isolate the factors responsible for that, what are they? Well, one major factor is occupational segregation, men and women working in different industries and even in the same industries, working in different jobs and at different ranks. So that's one really important factor. Another really important factor is something called the motherhood penalty, which is that the gender pay gap between two married adults who are working but don't have kids is much smaller. Once the first child arrives, there is an inequality in housework and childcare that really expands pretty significantly Once that first child arrives, and so what that forces women to do, this inequality, I refer to it as women have to take their foot off the career pedal a bit. You you think about taking your foot off the pedal a bit in a car, you're still moving forward towards your destination just at a slower speed. That's what I think of in terms of, of the motherhood penalty. So when you think about all those things together occupational segregation, even within industries, working in different jobs, different ranks, the motherhood penalty. What these economists have found is that about 60% of that pay gap can be attributed to those factors. That still leaves about 40% of the gap that can't be explained. And there's a lot of really good research out there, which suggests that discrimination plays some important role in that remaining 40%. One example is a study I often talk about in class, which is this experiment where they, where they gave resumes to science professors and they were gendered resumes, men and women. And what they found was even the female professors, it happened among the male professors, but even the female professors discriminated. They were offering less money to these uh, folks based upon gender. They were rating them as less competent, as less, you know, uh, likely to want to mentor them, et cetera. So um, yeah, I mean, these are, this is a great topic. It's very interesting. It's very timely. People really care about it. So yeah, we, we plan to do it down the road once we can, once we can line all these things up. Okay. Our next, we're going to lighten it up a tiny little bit. Our next question, Lawrence, I want you to answer this first. Lily in Ohio asks, I know this isn't a question you might typically deal with, but I'm interested. What are your favorite movies? That's a good question. I love movies. Ah, interesting question. Uh, I think my favorite movie forever and ever has always been The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I watched that movie a lot. I could watch it over and over again. <laughs> and you should see Allie's face right now. Seriously? The Wizard of Oz? <laughs> yep. I love The Wizard of Oz. I could watch it over and over and over again. And I do watch it over and over and over again. I have loved that movie since I was a little child. Okay, favorite character in The Wizard of Oz? Well, I love a lot of the characters in that movie, but my favorite character is the Scarecrow. And there's a scene towards the very end of the movie when Dorothy is leaving Oz. She's getting ready to climb into the hot air balloon with the wizard. And uh, 
She's saying goodbye to the Cowardly Lion, the Tin Man, and the last one she says goodbye to is the Scarecrow. And as she's hugging him, she whispers into his ear, I think I'll miss you most of all. And I always tell my kids, I don't have a favorite child, but um, they each think they're my favorite because whenever I'm saying goodbye to them, you know, I'm going off to work or wherever I'm going, I'll give them a hug and I'll whisper into their ear, I think I'll miss you most of all, Scarecrow. So I love the Scarecrow. Wow, the Scarecrow. I feel like a lot of things are falling into place right now. Thank you, Lily in Ohio. (laughs) Don't read too much into it, folks. I am reading so much into this. It is not even funny. Wow, I know you a lot better than I did before. The Wizard of Oz. Huh. All right, all right, Sigmund. Uh, Your turn on the couch. What are your favorite movies? Everyone will say that I've got like 75 favorite movies. Um, so in no particular order, the other day that my, what made my daughters watch an, a Whoopi Goldberg movie from 1986 called jumping Jack flash. And let me tell you something that has held up. I love that movie. I love Fletch, even though I know Chevy Chase is supposed to be questionable, um, as a person, but I don't care. I still really, really love Fletch. That goes back a very long way. I like modern ones. I, my my very best friend, uh, Stephanie Gerard, actually, she and I went to go see Ted and then Ted 2. And there are scenes from both of those movies. She has she has videos of me laughing so hard that she took out her phone in order to tape me um, because it's just kind of like crass, you know, humor that you can only watch with your best friend. All right, Allie, back to the mailbag. Let's see. This next question is for you from Katie in Maryland. And Ooh, wait. Which where in Maryland? Uh, where is she from? Let's see. She is from Hagerstown. <gasps> my GPS. Every time we, we drive through, my GPS says, hey, hey, Hagerstown. And so that's that's <laughs> what I call it now. <laughs> if we have to go to the outlets, the girls will say can we just go to Hagerstown? And I'm like, we absolutely can just because you said it that way. So hi, Katie. All right. So Katie from Maryland, she asks, Allie's Wikipedia page says that she collects elephant figurines and does good Muppet voices. Is this true? How did you get started with these hobbies and why elephant figurines? Have you been holding out on me? You do Muppet voices. Both of those things are lies, Lawrence. A a fantastically hilarious former honor student of mine was bored at work one day and went onto my Wikipedia page and added that. And it brings me so much delight that I have kept it there. And that way I can also, you know, I can also tell if somebody is trying to sort of impress me a little bit because they'll side over next to me and say like, so I understand you do Muppet voices. And I'm like, I do not. But that said, I am a very Muppety person. Um, and I like people who are Muppety because I think being Muppety is probably the highest compliment that I can give anybody. It's somebody who has like a good joie de vivre and who really can either play a banjo if you're Kermit or karate chop if you're Piggy, um, play the piano if you're Rolf or, you know what, tell jokes as if you're Fozzie and Fozzie is my favorite Muppet. Um, I like wearing a hat. Um, I'm a pretty corny person. And so I'm going to go all day, every day with Fozzie Bear. Who's your favorite? My favorite Muppet. Uh, I'm not, I don't really watch the Muppets, which I'm sure makes me 
uh, a bad person in your book. Uh, if Sesame Street counts, then I guess maybe Big Bird. Really? With the Wizard of Oz and Big Bird. That's what you're giving me? Okay. I'm just, you know what? That's not, that's the wrong answer. Okay. You're your favorite. <laughs> What's the right answer? Oscar the Grouch. I think everybody who listens to this podcast knows it's Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> that's who you are. I am so confused by this. I seriously am. I really am. You are. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm kind of back on the couch again. Uh, I mean, I I don't know. I, f- I feel like maybe I have a little bit of arrested development, to be honest. Um, I kind of have this really fairy tale image of life and, and of what I want life to be and uh, the world continually disappoints me on what the world is and what I, what I hoped it would be when I was younger. That makes sense is also very upsetting and, um, and explains a lot. Have you, what about, have you tried other movies like hot tub time machine perhaps? (laughs) Oh, I love hot tub time machine. That movie's hilarious. I, I laugh at it every time I watch it. I do too. Oh my gosh, I do too. All right. I know that you therapists uh, charge by the hour. So do you mind if we switch topics and reach back into the mailbag? All right, Lawrence. The next question is from Hannah from Canada. And I'm just going to call her Hannada. Hannada wants to know, she rightfully points out that I'm consistently making fun of how many children you have. So she wants to know, how many children you have. And you know what, Hanada? I'm just going to answer for him. He has 17 kids. <laughs> uh, no, I don't have 17. I have four children. Uh, the oldest is a boy. And then the two middle children are girls. And then my youngest little baby is a boy. And uh, they're wonderful. Um Actually, we had our first child when I was in graduate school at the University of Florida. And I remember this vividly. I was sitting on the couch in our apartment and I was watching the movie Batman Begins. And my wife came down and sat down on the couch next to me. And she was sitting very close to me and she was not faced towards the movie. She was faced directly towards me, looking, staring directly into my ear, uh, smiling from ear to ear. And after a minute, I kind of turned to her and I said, yes, is there something you'd like to tell me? And she said that we were having a baby. And um, it's funny, when I was young, when I was in high school, I actually didn't want to have any children. And uh, it's just funny that that's what I thought at one time, because When she told me that we were having a baby, I never knew that I could feel that kind of joy. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just the greatest source of joy and warmth and it means everything to me. I have four wonderful, wonderful children. Okay. Now the whole wizard of Oz, big bird thing. Is, is kind of come, this is now making a little bit more sense. I've been to Florida. My people, my people do Florida. <laughs> the Jews <laughs> moved to Florida. When I was in high school, Rachel, how we began this with the story of Rachel's um, grandmother's car 
and her license plate that said Fawa. Rachel came with me to visit my grandmother and uh, in, you know, Fort Lauderdale because it's the law. And um, shortly after we got there, my grandmother ended up in the hospital and she was okay at that time. Um, but Rachel and I were alone in Fort Lauderdale over spring break. Now we were 14, we looked 11. And so our idea of a good time was getting a lot of potato chips and onion dip, sleeping until like two o'clock, going out to the pool, eating a lot of potato chips, um, and then wondering why we didn't never got a tan. And, um, and so, you know, we just didn't really have, you know, we weren't able to drive anywhere. We weren't really motivated to get a cab to go anywhere. I vaguely remember going to see something in the movie theater that I don't think my mother would have let me see. Um, but that was as bold as we got. And one day I went down to go feed the ducks because there were ducks in the canal out by my grandmother's condo. And this dude walks out and he says, hey, you're Eleanor's granddaughter, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And, you know, to me, he was like the oldest like grown up guy in the world, but clearly still very young. And I think he probably was like 21, 22. And he said, Hey, you know, I heard about your grandma. Is there anything you need? And I said, no, no, not at all. And he said, you know, my roommates and I we're dancers at a club. Maybe you, you and your friend would like to come down and join us. And I mean, I remember doing like a hair toss, like Heather Locklear could never have pulled off. Now I had the worst hair at the time because I was you know, 14 and did not understand product or I don't know, anything, a comb or a styling system. Um, but I did that hair toss and I kind of leaned in as if I was telling him a secret. And I said, you know, we're not 21, which I think he definitely knew and was okay with. And he said, well, I understand. I can still get you in, come in and or just wait right here. I'm going to go run and get you the card so that you can, you can take a cab there. It's, it's not that far away. And I said, oh, okay. So I'm holding this bag of bread and he hands me this postcard. And I looked at the postcard and I remember thinking he works with the village people because on the front of the postcard was a guy dressed as a cowboy. There was a guy dressed as a policeman. There was a guy dressed as a fireman. And then I also realized there are not wearing very much clothing, just basically a very small bathing suit. And so as my brain is slowly putting these pieces together, I looked up at him and he said, yeah, so we we work in this in this male strip club and your friends, you and your friend could come down and have a it would be it would be fine. You know, you can't have any alcohol, but that's OK. And I just remember nodding like very politely. Yes. Thank you for this invitation. And I like waved my bag of bread at him to say, like, thank you. That's very polite. And I turned around and walked away. And I just remember thinking, just walk, just walk. And I got back to the door and turned around. He was standing there sort of looking at me, trying hard not to laugh. And I waved my bag of bread at him again and ran inside screaming like a banshee, you know, male strippers, male strippers, because I was so at 14 and very young, very freaked out by this idea. And um, Rachel was napping at the time, thought that there was some sort of fire. So she got up and ran out of the apartment and realized there is no fire. There's just this guy like standing there laughing, uh, came back in and said, what the hell are you talking about? We did not go, suffice it to say. Um, and I never got to feed the ducks. So I'd say it was a lose-lose situation on both parts. That's Florida to me. Oh, wait a minute. We have another question coming across the line from Lawrence. 
in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and his question is, but really, Allie, how was the show? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that wraps it up for the mailbag. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. We are so appreciative. We love our audience. We have so many people tuning in from all over the United States, but also in something like 35 or 36 countries around the world. Thank you so much. We're having such a great time doing this and we're going to keep doing this for a long, long time. So thank you so much. We love that you're listening. We really appreciate it. And Today on this episode, on this special mailbag episode, we're going to play you out with a few clips that Allie and I think are, are um, I don't know, good clips to listen to in these times. So until next time, thanks for listening. Mr. President, today was heartbreaking and, uh, and I was shaken to the core as I thought about the people I met in China and Russia and Afghanistan and Iraq and other places who yearn for freedom and who looked to this building and these shores as a place of hope. And I saw the images being broadcast around the world and it breaks my heart. I have 25 grandchildren. Many of them were watching TV, thinking about this building, whether their grandpa was okay. I knew I was okay. I must tell you as well, I was proud to serve with these men and women. This is an extraordinary group of people. I'm proud to be a member of the United States Senate and meet with people of integrity as we do here today. Now we gather due to a selfish man's injured pride and the outrage of supporters who he has deliberately misinformed for the past two months and stirred to action this very morning. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support is a dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit in an unprecedented attack against our democracy. Fairly or not, they'll be remembered for their role in this shameful episode in American history. That will be their legacy. I salute Senator Langford and Leffler, and Braun, and Danes, and I'm sure others, who in the light of today's outrage have withdrawn their objection. For any who remain insistent on an audit in order to satisfy the many people who believe that the election was stolen, I'd offer this perspective. No congressional audit is ever going to convince these voters, particularly when the president will continue to say that the election was stolen. The best way we can show respect for the voters who are upset is by telling them the truth. That's the burden. That's the duty of leadership. The truth is that President-elect Biden won the election. President Trump lost. I've had that experience myself. It's no fun. <laughs> Scores of courts, the president's own attorney general, state election officials, both Republican and Democrat, have reached that unequivocal decision. 
And in light of today's sad circumstances, I ask my colleague, do we weigh our own political fortunes more heavily than we weigh the strength of our republic, the strength of our democracy, and the cause of freedom? What's the weight of personal acclaim compared to the weight of conscience? Leader McConnell said that the vote today is the most important in his 36 years of public service. Think of that. Authorizing two wars, voting on two impeachments. He said that not because the vote reveals something about the election, it's because this vote reveals something about us. I urge my colleagues to move forward with completing the electoral count, to refrain from further objections, and to unanimously affirm the legitimacy of the presidential election. Thank you, Mr. President. There's a chapel in Kansas, standing on the exact center of the lower 48. It never closes. All are more than welcome to come meet here in the middle. It's no secret, the middle has been a hard place to get to lately, between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear. Now fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all, whoever you are, wherever you're from. It's what connects us, and we need that connection. We need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground. So we can get there. We can make it to the mountaintop, through the desert, and we will cross this divide. Our light has always found its way through the darkness. And there's hope on the road up ahead.